1998, Jenny and I purchased our first home. Oh, we were so excited. We had saved for eight years. We did everything right. We put 20% down. We were so meticulous about everything about our first home and we wanted to do everything right. We wanted everything to be perfect. And we moved in and at the time that we moved, a relative died and left us a little bit of money that enabled us, us, that enabled us to put in brand new carpeting throughout the entire house. And we were so proud of ourselves. We were like, oh yes, this is awesome. And so we moved in and my parents went back to Indiana and Jenny's parents went back to Virginia. And we seemed tired. You know, it, you know the move can take a lot out of you, you know, when you're moving and, and sorting stuff and kind of kind of living out of boxes. And, and, and John Mark was only 13 months old at the time. And we started having knockdown drag out fights. I mean, yelling matches, throwing things, all of the illegal stuff you're not supposed to do when you're fighting with your spouse, you know. By the way, she was the thrower, I was the receiver, just in case you're wondering, right? Okay, so, and we, after a few days of that, we were like, maybe we made a mistake, you know? Maybe, maybe this wasn't our time to buy a house. Maybe we heard God wrong. Maybe, maybe this just is the wrong time, but maybe we made a mistake. Well, at the end of the third week, there was something I had forgotten to do because the house had a gas hot water heater. So I went to Lowe's and I got a carbon monoxide detector and I plugged it in and we went to bed like we had every other night. And in the middle of the night, well, we call the fire department and we're standing outside on the street and the fire department comes and they're like, oh, well, you got new carpet. It's probably new carpet. Then the gas guy comes with his uh, reader. And as soon as he steps out of the truck, and then all of a sudden, the firemen are like, could you move across the street? <laughs> all the windows of the house come up, and it's like, what? We, were, we had all of the symptoms, we didn't know it, of carbon monoxide poisoning. I know, how cool is that? Kaboom, carbon monoxide poisoning. Here's the thing. Anything you attempt in life is going to have problems. If you buy a house, I'm just telling you. Homeowners, can I get an amen? Amen. amen. If you do anything. So some of you have felt like, man, I feel like I should, I, I, I feel like I should go on. I should get this graduate degree. And, and you, you've talked to people and, and you think you've heard from God and there's consensus among your wise counselors. I'm just telling you that it's, it's entirely possible that the week before classes start, you're going to get a letter from financial aid stating that your financial aid has changed, meaning you're getting less. You're going to have bumps. You're going to have problems. It's going to happen. I'm telling you, you're going to meet someone. You're going to think, man, I like her. Ooh, I like him. And before you know it, you're meeting each other's parents. And then before you know it, you've bought a ring. You've said yes. After the wedding and the honeymoon, I'm just saying, there's going to be problems. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. OK? Anything significant that you attempt in life is going to have problems. And this is especially true if you allow yourself to become burdened by something, burdened to help solve a problem. I'm telling you, just like Nehemiah, as you get into it, you're going to find that you're going to encounter problems. 
you're gonna encounter criticism and you're gonna might even face some opposition. So teens, if I could talk to you for a moment, teenagers, I know that you have this roadmap for your life. You have ideas. You're already saying to yourself, my parents never have new cars. When I'm a grown up, dot, 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 you're saying to yourself, when I move out of the house, I'm dot, dot, dot. I know, I know, you've, you may not have a detailed roadmap, but you've got ideas. I just wanna suggest to you that it's not going to be smooth sailing. It's not gonna play out maybe necessarily the way you think. I'm just saying you're gonna have bumps, you're gonna have complainers, and you're gonna have haters. Expect it. One, it's in the Bible. Two, it's how life works. It's how life works. And so if you brought a Bible, we're gonna be in Nehemiah 2. We're plodding along in the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be in Nehemiah 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter. By way of reminder, Nehemiah was an Israelite living at a time when there was no Israel. Israel had been defeated militarily by the Babylonian Empire. And so the two Jewish nation states were gone. And the major cities had been burned and ransacked. And the Babylonians had this really awesome policy of deportation. In other words, not only did you get invaded, but they would come along, they would come in a room like this and they would say, all right, dividing lines here, all of you are going to now live in Montreal. Woo, je suis Paris, And you're like, I don't speak French. Yeah, too bad. And that's how it worked. It was terrible. People were putting different nation states and, and all over the map. And so Nehemiah was an Israelite, a Jew, living in the Persian capital of Susa. And as we learned in the last couple of weeks, Nehemiah's brother had been back to Jerusalem and saw the deplorable state of the wall and of the city and, and made a report. And the report was such that it grabbed Nehemiah's attention and his heart. He couldn't shake it. He couldn't shake it out of his head. He couldn't shake it out of his heart. He wanted to do something. It was a problem he wanted to help solve. And so he waited and waited and waited and an opportunity before the king presented itself and he made a case, All right? And that's where we pick things up in chapter two, verse 11. So Nehemiah makes this case to the king and he travels to Jerusalem. Verse 11, so I arrived in Jerusalem Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me, right? So I arrived in Jerusalem. If go back to verse 11. And I had been there three days. Isn't that odd? He gets there. I mean, it's this problem that's been burdening him. He's got the letters from the king. He's traveled all the way. He arrives and does nothing. You know what he did? He did what a lot of us Baptists do in church. Okay, he slept. He rested. He rested just like Ezra did in Ezra 8, verse 32. He rested. Even though Nehemiah was a man of action, he didn't just jump in. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he rested. This is critical. So for some of you, for some of you, I can't tell you how many people I've met in life and they're ready to pull a plug on a marriage and they're worn out and they're tired. 
They're ready to close a business or walk away from a career, and they're tired. They're tired. And we'll get to what you can draw from this verse in a little bit, but rest is critically important, and Nehemiah does that. So verses 12 through 16. So I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate past the jackal's well and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered it again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. The walls of Jerusalem were about three to four feet thick and about 15 to 20 feet tall, and they had been decimated. And at, at the minimum cir circumference, it was a mile length, a mile's length of walls that needed to be repaired. So th this isn't a weekend project. This isn't a go to Lowe's and get it done deal. This is a, oh my goodness, this is going to take a while. I need to call the Allen Company and bring in heavy equipment, right? So in, in this moment, I, Nehemiah is seeing firsthand just how bad it is. He had heard and he had been burdened, but now he sees the reality of, oh, you know, they said it was bad, but, you know, I didn't think it was this bad. Some of you have been there, right? You, you accept a teaching position and they tell you it's special ed, and, but it's great. You're going to have help. You've got all these assistants that are going to be coming in. And then after the first week, you're like, Oh, you mean the assistants come in for five minutes on Monday, and then I'm on my own the rest of the week. Oh, this is bad, <laughs> kind of a thing. And so that's where Nehemiah finds himself. And he does it at night so that he can see firsthand what's going on without questions, without criticism, without leaking information to other people. Nehemiah didn't rely on secondhand information, and he didn't immediately rally the troops he got an accurate assessment. So if you put that, those, those verses up there, last a little bit again, he went out firsthand and he saw just how bad it was. For some of us, come on, let's be honest, for where we are financially, we might need to talk to a financial planner. For where we are with some relationship roadblocks, we might need to talk to a counselor, right? For some... For some of us that are contemplating business decisions, we might need to talk to someone who can genuinely help us have an accurate assessment of where we really are. So Nehemiah starts off and he gets a real, he knows this is what it's going to take. I can't tell you, I've lived in Jesmond County now 20 some years and a lot of great restaurants have opened in this community. A lot of great restaurants that are gone in three to six months. And part of it is there's not an accurate assessment of the community and what it's going to take. 
And, I, and I'll get to that in just a little bit, okay? So keep, keep plodding along with me, verses, let's see, 17 and 18. But now, verse 17, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then I told them about how gracious, the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Nehemiah then casts vision about, and, and he includes himself in the problem. He doesn't show up in Jerusalem and say, man, you guys are in the hole. You need to do something about this wall. Anybody can come in and pressure you to stop offering sacrifices in the temple, to demand payment. Uh, you're at anyone's mercy. No, he doesn't, he uses we. We have this, our walls, okay? So he identifies with where they are and the problem that they're facing. And then he casts vision and he outlines, you know well what trouble, and, and he tells them all the things that had happened back in the city of Susa where he had served King Artaxerxes. Vision has kind of two parts to it, if you're familiar with this, right? There's the, there's the what could be part. Uh, you'll often hear that uh, referred to as like an elevator speech, okay? So someone comes along and they're like, uh, our community doesn't have any indoor pools, right? So you'll have somebody come along and go, man, if you're a you're, you're round swimmer, you know, you got to drive all the way to Lexington and how terrible is that? And, and they'll paint out this picture of what could be and what Jesmond County could have if it had X, right? So there's the could be part and then there's the why, why it's important. So if you'll remember back a few weeks ago, I told the story of Tom's shoes. Simple, simple thing for this guy. Uh, he shows up in Argentina and he sees all these kids who don't have shoes and there are health problems, education problems and all kinds of problems because they don't have shoes. And he says to himself, this isn't a shoe problem. We've got plenty of shoes all over. And, and he begins to cast a vision for, I'm going to start a company where when you buy a pair of shoes, built into the price of that pair of shoes is money so that someone, some kid somewhere gets a pair of shoes who doesn't have one. And it grabbed people. It was an expression of, clear expression of what could be and why it's important. Um, generations, we're in that boat. I mean, look around the room for a moment. Do you see tons and tons of gray hair? No, you see some. Do you know that there's a problem in the church in America right now? One of the biggest problems in the church in America is that the church is aging. And there's so many churches and there are churches in our community that uh, gone are the days when they needed a VBS or a nursery or a kids area or a youth program. And they've simply aged and aged out. In the last couple of years, three churches in our community have closed and more will close in the future. We need to reach the next generation. We need it to be the case that faith isn't just an old person thing or a baby boomer thing or a millennial uh, Gen Xer thing. It needs to be something that bridges the generations. There's, there's import in why. Um, I love what happened when Walt uh, Disney World opened, okay, in California. The day the park opened, Walt Disney had died before the park opened. Okay, so on opening day, a guy comes to the platform to introduce Mrs. Disney, and he says, 
man, I just, I just wish Walt could have seen this. She gets up out of her chair to make her speech. She comes to the platform. She says two words and sits down. You know what she said? He did. <laughs> he saw it. He had the vision for it. He knew exactly what it was going to be. The fact that it's just now built is icing on the cake. He knew it was coming, right? There's power in that. And Nehemiah does that with the Jews that are in Jerusalem. Let's pick up at what happens, verse 19 and following. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard our plan, they scoffed, and here's a great word, contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you, you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. They're mocking and ridiculing Nehemiah openly. I don't know if you know this, but you have an unseen enemy, and when you attempt to do something great for God or great for yourself that's God-inspired and God-fueled, you, you may not have audible voices in the mouth of Sanballat, but you may have voices in your head that will mock and ridicule what you're attempting to do. Count on it. Right? So Nehemiah is mocked and ridiculed. They make a false accusation. He responds directly but he doesn't engage the accusation. Does, does he try and dispute what they're doing? No, he just says, look, you don't have any part in this. You don't have any share. You don't have any responsibility. I'm just telling you what God has started, God's gonna finish. That's all I'm saying. That's the max paraphrase, by the way, okay? So here's what Nehemiah avoids. He avoids two extremes, two pitfalls. When, when you feel a burden to do something, when you're stepping out to maybe go to grad school or college or enter into a relationship, I mean, there's all kinds of things. Start a business. You can be Pollyanna about it. You can be, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to open this restaurant, and we're just going to, by the end of the year, we're going to have five franchises. I just know it. I just feel it. You know, the Lord's told me. And, and we're, you can be all Pollyanna about it. In other words, not real, realistic. On the whole other end of the continuum are the pessimists. Oh, yeah, I'm going to open this business. I'm pretty sure it's going to fail. In fact... I'm just going to go ahead and burn all my credit cards and, <laughs> right? Okay? Please avoid those two extremes. Neither has merit in it. Um, it you're going to be off. In the early days of generations, I thought to myself, I'll be full-time in three years. That did not happen, by the way. That did not happen. On the other hand... The pessimists are wrong because God delights in doing the impossible. I like to think of generations as the tipping point for Jesmond County. Before we opened our doors in a 10-year period, this community doubled in size and every single church plant that was started failed and closed. Since we started, there are now three to five new churches and they're all going just like us, just fine, thank you very much. It's like that scene in Lord of the Rings where the guy goes, 
It's the turn of the tide, right? That's how I like to think of generations. So again, those are the two extremes. Avoid those two extremes. Please, pretty please with sugar on top. Can I ask you a couple of questions in light of this passage from Nehemiah? Question number one, is there someone you need to talk to? Is there some research you need to do so that you have an accurate assessment of what lies in front of you? Second question, what if, what if the presence of problems, the presence of criticism, or even outright opposition is not an indication that you've made a mistake, but simply an indication that you're exactly on track where you need to be? So what, are you, what can you take home? What can you apply out of this? One, expect problems. Expect problems, expect criticism, expect downright opposition from time to time. Two, pretty pleased with sugar on top, do not make decisions, major life decisions when you are tired. Nehemiah, when he got to Jerusalem, he rested. And when you are simply worn out, you will do things that maybe later you regret. I have to admit, there, are, there have been some times where I've been tired and discouraged, and I've wanted to quit, quit being a pastor, quit, you know. And I, there was a man in my early days, one of my mentors, and I went to Charles, and I said, Charles, because he had started a church too. I said, Charles, what do I do? I feel like I want to quit. How do, did you ever feel that way? And he shocked me. He said, of course I felt that way. I felt that way about every other day. In fact, some, some months and some years, I felt that way every day that ended in Y. And I was like, but what did you do? Help me. He said, well, I just decided that I would quit quitting. Huh? Yeah, I just decided I would quit quitting and I was going to keep pushing on. Okay? So uh, hear me. Don't make major decisions when you're tired. Third thing from this passage you can get from Nehemiah, you don't have to engage every verbal battle. Every criticism does not have to be answered. God is at work. And there are things that God can do that maybe you or I can't do by simply answering back. By the way, all of this applies to you parents. I know it's Father's Day today. Come on, moms and dads. You are engaged in a great work. There are going to be problems. There is going to be complaining. Complaining. You may even have outright opposition from within the ranks. Don't quit. Don't quit. You may yet live to see the day. I, I had lunch with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. He's got a couple of kids now in, in, in the mid-20s. And he says to me, Max, I can die now. I'm like, Lee, is, have you been to see the doctor? Like, what's going on, buddy? No, 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 you don't understand. And he, and he tells a situation about his oldest daughter came to him about a relational thing and, and basically said to him, Dad, you're right. What? What? So he, in his mind, he was like, I can die now. You know, everything's come full circle. It's nirvana. It's the coming of the Lord. And I'm just telling you, stick with it. Stick with it. Here, here's here's kind of an example of how this plays out. Um, 
Roughly eight years ago, we ended up on uh, the Lone Oak Shark swim team uh, because we moved into the neighborhood and, and, and the swimming pool was right here, right? And so Jenny shows up and it's 20 swimmers. And, and after our kids got involved, John Mark and Jill wasn't old enough to swim at the time, I don't think. And so we got involved. And a few weeks later, the coach quit. And then Jenny became like, Oh, I guess I'm coaching now, huh? Hmm. And then they came to us and said, yeah, there's no money. Here's what they meant by that. The previous year, T-shirts that said Sharks 2007, we had to get Sharpie markers and cross out the seven and make it into an eight. That's how little money we had. That's like no money, okay? And then the next year, the pump in the pool went out. And they basically said, you know, I think we're just going to close the pool. That's what we're going to do, OK? Problems. Problems. I can tell you that there was a time, that second, third year, where Jenny says, maybe I shouldn't do this. Do you know, do you know today she's got 100 competitive swimmers? She's a cap. She had to turn swimmers away. 15 mini sharks, three assistant, paid assistant coaches. And she's the envy of the league. Not because it's, she's got the fastest swimmers, but because parents are engaged and involved and her kids have the best sportsmanship of anybody in the league. But if she had quit three years in, okay? So what I'm saying to you is hang in there. Expect problems. Problems are normal, but God is also at work. 